This is the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library on WQRT 99.1 FM, Indianapolis. In 1922, Kurt Vonnegut was welcomed to Earth. Over his 84 years, he became a beloved writer known for his unflinching look at the world and an outspoken voice for free speech and common decency. Known for his unique sardonic style, Vonnegut published 14 novels, three collections of short stories, five plays, and five works of nonfiction. In 2022, the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library are celebrating Vonnegut's 100th birthday. Join me, Chris Lefebvre, and my co-host, Sam Bannon, as we explore the ways Vonnegut's legacy has shaped the lives of others and continues to make souls grow. From the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, this is the Vonnegast. 2022 is the year of Vonnegut of 100, a century of stories. And the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library has a full year of programs and events celebrating the life, work, and legacy of Kurt Vonnegut. In July, we are hosting our 11th annual Teaching Vonnegut Workshop Series. This year, workshops will be 100% virtual and classes are now open for registration at kvml.org. Led by experts in their fields and Vonnegut scholars, workshops aim to enhance both public and educator knowledge on a variety of topics related to the works, interests, and philosophy of Kurt Vonnegut. Stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials for upcoming announcements about Band Books Week, Vonnegut Fest, and the rest of our 2022 programs. Welcome to the Vonicast. I am your host, Chris Lefave, and I am joined by my ever-handsome co-host, <laughs> Sam Bannon. Today, we're thrilled to have Jared and Joshua Sock Joplin Thompson in studio as our special guests on the Vonicast. The Thompson brothers are both longtime members of the music community in Indianapolis. Jared is a composer and jazz saxophonist and leader of the group Premium Blend, Joshua as a classical pianist and music sociologist. And now you are also music directors in residence at the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library. Thank you for joining us on the Vonnegut. How are you doing today? Doing great, man. Thanks for having us. This is a, this is a fun way to spend an afternoon, so we say thank you. Ditto. Yeah, I was going to say... <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be interesting waiting for Slice. <laughs> we're doing this entirely by visual cues. So today we're going to start things a little bit differently because uh, today's kind of a special day. Um, I'm going to read a Kurt Vonnegut quote, which is an odd way, odd way to start a podcast. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut said in his epic, A Man Without a Country, his collection of essays that he wrote not long before he died, uh, he wrote, I consider anybody a twerp who hasn't read the greatest American short story, which is Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. It isn't remotely political. It's just a flawless example of American genius like Sophisticated Lady by Duke Ellington or the Franklin Stove. Uh, I'm not sure I even remember what a Franklin Stove is, but I'm definitely pretty familiar with uh, Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Lady. Uh, brings us to my point. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut is turning 100 in 1922, which we've been programming a lot with the Vonnegut Museum. Uh, we had a big celebration in April, which is the anniversary of his passing, uh, which was 15 years ago, but we decided having a big outdoor rager at the museum in the middle of November when his actual birthday takes place was a bad idea. Um, Indi Indianapolis weather can be pretty, uh, pretty out there, even under the best of circumstances. <laughs> um, another hero of American arts and humanities is turning 100 today. I, of course, am talking about legendary bassist, composer, um, author. He wrote a wonderful autobiography. I, I um, Of course, I'm blanking on the title now. I literally looked it up just before this. Um, but he, uh, Charles, I am talking about Charles, hashtag AF, Mingus. Uh, legendary musician, heard him for the first time in college. I don't think I've ever heard a bigger, deeper sound before or since. Um 
if you check out 1959's Ah uh, Um, probably some of the best album cover art you'll ever see in your life, and it's an amazing album. Uh, the Black Saint and the Sinner Lady, uh, Matthew Altizer and I are co-hosting uh, Have You Heard in Indianapolis lately. We've done a month's worth of programming on Charles Mingus. Uh, I read from the legendary music critic Lester Bangs. He compared The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady to having your first orgasm, and that was the most G-rated um, uh, comment that he made in his essay. Uh, so I have two music scholars whose knowledge goes way beyond mine. Uh, so I'd like to, if you guys are willing, take turns on your thoughts on um, on Charles Mingus. Yeah, I, he his music is it sums up his personality. It, it's very direct, uh, brash sometimes, but not unnecessarily brash. Um, we both first got into his music in high school. Uh, we had a wonderful um, high school jazz band at, at North Central High School. And our junior year, um, our band director, Michael Akers, started introducing all these Char or, uh, Charles Mingus tunes. So Monin was one of them. Haitian Fight Song and Gunsling and Bird were our introduction into his music and his work and just how to approach jazz music from the way that he had it. So at that time in high school, I was playing Barry Sax. Uh, I didn't start doing tenor full time until I went to college. Um, what caused the breakup, if you don't mind me asking? He wanted I to get. Like, I didn't own it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it was the school's instrument. Yeah. Truth be told, what it was is that um, I didn't make it into the top wind ensemble on tenor saxophone. So they had a baritone saxophone. I was like, all right, well, I want to be in the top wind ensemble in jazz band. So I played Barry all four years and crushed it. The, Jared, what, you were maybe what all of like I don't know five four. And so this instrument is easily as tall as he is, and <laughs> it was like it was like carrying a coffin back it home off was, the bus. But man, that, and I'm biased for sure. But Jared blew that thing out of the water, and I think that entire year, every single piece had this huge like Barry Sax feature. Ra and it was, random it was nice. story. It was this was junior year at um, Bloomington Jazz Festival. All the high schools around the area compete. And David Baker was one of the adjudicators. So you get finished playing, and he comes up and critiques. And, and I'm playing Barry, and it's the first time I've met David Baker. And it's David Baker, you know. And I'm that sounds intimidating. I'm just really, saying, like, you know, I'm, I'm been 15, 16 years old. And we get done playing, and he just walks around the stage, and he just looks at me. He goes, "You do push-ups before you play?" <laughs> and I was just, he's like, "It sounds like you do push-ups before you play." And I was like, "That's as good of a compliment as I'm going to get from a legend." I was so about I'll to say, take is, it. "Is that a good thing or a bad?" He thing? was, he was impressed. He liked it. It wasn't the best he'd ever heard, but. I was five five and like eighty pounds, soaking wet, holding a brick. So, <laughs> Chris, maybe you, know. you and I started doing push-ups before the Vonicast episodes. It could hurt, you know, if it works for you. Couldn't it hurt. might work yeah. for y'all. You know, no, no. and, yeah, that, and that would might be, as well try it out. That yeah. would be marriage catnip too. If I sent a video of me doing push-ups, Sarah would laugh for a full day. <laughs> like, just she wouldn't even get words out. She'd just be laughing. Um, so I, I, about Mingus though, like I, I just wanted to get that through. Like I, I wanted to complete my thought too. Mingus used to cover "Sophisticated Lady" as a bass solo a lot. Right. That was the connection I was trying to make to Vonnegut. Uh, but you were introduced to his music in high school. Yeah, we. I was. I was a huge jazz buff. I mean, it's as a saxophone player, I'm thinking, what's the best uh, point of reference of, of music to listen to? I could have gone the rock route, which is nothing wrong with that. But I mean, jazz has saxophones in it everywhere so yeah. mm -hmm. that's i just i fell in love with it it's and the stories behind the music the stories of the individuals i think is what ingratiated me to the music um even more uh, these are people you know we we hear about them and, and their works and we hear their works but very seldomly do we get to hear what they sounded like their opinions on certain things how they found their place in the society that they were living in which mingus was very vocal about his place as a, a black man um, in a very tumultuous period of American history. Um, and he used his art to to portray that. And so there's these little things that at 15, 16 years old, you're not necessarily thinking about all the time, but as you grow up and mature and reflect back on these influences, you see how they're able to marry their music with their message um, in a way that's impactful, that still translates whether you know the backstory or not. Yeah, and, and Joshua, I just wanted to give you a chance to speak on that, too, because I, I, I love that, like, you guys 
as far as I can tell, and my apologies, I've, I've met Jared more times than I've met you. Most people have. That's how I, I was like, how did, you, how did you know anyone? I'm like, they all met me through through my brother. So not, that's fine. We cover not way true. more ground that way, and I'm okay with it. That's fine. Okay, that's that's a relief, because I uh, I was actually a Suzuki-trained pianist growing up, so okay. my, my ignorance about classical music I feel really embarrassed about <laughs> on many levels. Um, but I wanted to give you, you know, what are your thoughts on Mingus as well? Yeah, you know, uh, Jared and I chose to take you know, divergent paths very early on. Jared was always very jazz heavy. Uh, I've always been very deeply rooted in classical music. And I, and I, and I do like that, as I mentioned earlier, I think you can cover more ground that way artistically. And oh, hell yeah. it allows you to make the connections between the two, you know, with Minkus, he started out as a cellist and his formal music education was to be a classical cellist. But at the time that he's doing all this, the prospects and the opportunities for black classical musicians were absolutely not there. And so he's making this pivot. He's making this adjustment, um, you know, almost kind of drawing parallels to David Baker himself, right? Baker starts out as a trombonist, has this accent, and he becomes a cellist. Yes. Uh, so Mingus switches to the bass because, you know, it's, that's in the pocket for, for the jazz genre. But this is also where his composition becomes so much more complex. As he even says, you know, the music he writes and plays is literally a reflection of his own life. He's complicated. He's ever evolving. He's ever changing. And, and his life and his story is a reflection of that in the music. And man, what a trajectory that we have continued to follow because of that within jazz, within rock, within, you know, there is no Bitches Brew without Mingus. There is no David Bowie without Mingus, you know, all these other influences and whatnot. Uh, and so just such a prolific career, but uh, you only get that because you have to go through stuff in life. And he did not have an easy childhood, did not have an easy life, hence, his temper and why he's known as like the mean man of jazz, you'd be angry too if you kind of had some of this <laughs> yeah. stuff as well. Yeah. But he finds this avenue and this pathway, an artistic pathway in which to express that. And if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, that's on you, right? Man, I, I could not have said that even remotely as well as you did. We <laughs> last, last weekend, because uh, Matthew and I had a mix-up, and by the way, I had asked you guys at Night of Vonnegut why you didn't think there were any big Mingus tributes going on. And you guys said I didn't know, and I didn't know either. I talked to Matthew for 10 seconds, and he was like, oh, it's because those songs are so hard. <laughs> well, that's it. because yeah. no one wants to spend three months trying to figure <laughs> out. None of it's easy. None so it. so I, I was laughing really, really hard at that, because I we uh, last weekend we tried to potty train my three-year-old very unsuccessfully. And, <laughs> you know, both of my wife and I are fighting basic migraines, and I'm listening to Black Saint, The Sitter Lady, and track number three starts with a beautiful piano solo followed by beautiful classical guitar, mm -hmm. and then there's a horn of insanity that goes on for a prolonged period of time and I got my wife in the next room thinking she must be dying right now <laughs> and like begging me to turn it off and I'm like much like Vonnegut who you know sometimes turned his anger into humor mm -hmm. which Mingus did um, sometimes when he was giving advice to writers said you have to deserve an, a, a listener's attention I couldn't turn it off yeah I couldn't turn it off. It was much like Coltrane where you're like okay he's literally taking me to another planet there's no wheels on the car I'm staying here. <laughs> yeah. And Vonnegut with Signs of Titan, books like that, mm -hmm. he was capable of doing that too. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I appreciate everybody going with my sidetrack here. Sam, <laughs> no. uh, Sam, any thoughts on Charles Mingus? Well, I was about to say, I am basically a jazz virgin, to use a fun little term with that. <laughs> so I would ask you guys, and Chris, you too, since you're, you're big into jazz, what, what would you say separates Mingus compared to other musicians from his, from his time? I think in his time, it was the convention or the, the constructs that he was going against. Mm. Um, you know, he, he played with Miles Davis in the, mm. the late 40s, early 50s, and it had, you know, kind of a common structure. And then we start moving closer and closer to, to bebop and hard bop and eventually in the, the free jazz uh, period. And I think it was just the way that he would approach composing or just what this music is supposed to sound like. I don't think he thought too much about if it's jazz or what jazz is. Frankly, and he's on record saying it, he did not care what jazz music was or yeah. what he thought it is. It was no concern to him. And mm -hmm. I think that's what allowed him to liberate himself from some of the, the fetters of of the conventional way of, of approaching and, and performing jazz music. Yeah, and by the time you hear Fables of Fabus, I mean, there's nothing grounding that to really most things. I mean, it's... I, I, there are different parts of that song where you would struggle to call it a genre at all. I yeah. Guess. He just made music. You know what yeah. I mean? I think that was yeah. his main goal is that he had an objective that he wanted to fulfill and he did it 
in whatever way that he saw fit to his knowledge and best of his ability. And the live albums are incredible, and we couldn't play it on the radio because every single song is 35 <laughs> minutes long. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah, we wouldn't have the Grateful Dead without Charles Mangus. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you guys are the new music directors and residents at the yes. KVML. Yeah. Tell us what that means. It, we're really excited to, to be able to do this. This is actually something that was kind of in its inception from you know, two other really, really influential and prominent artists here in Indianapolis and uh, growing nationally and internationally with uh, guitarist Charlie Ballantyne and saxophonist Rob Dixon. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially what we do, and it's been our understanding that, you know, the Museum and Library, since its inception, has always been receiving from around the world aficionados of Anaget original musical works, uh, you know, plays, and just submissions, artistic expressions inspired by Vonnegut. And so a lot of times we would hear, but we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what we have. Is this any good? What is this? How does this work? And so we really have such a fun job of, you know, opening this this awesome Pandora's box of whatever's in there mm-hmm. and kind of reviewing and curating to pair with current exhibits, future exhibits to be able to work towards and actualize a, a regular call for submissions internationally for folks to be able to bridge the gaps and, and accentuate what, you know, the postmodern message is of Vonnegut mm-hmm. through through music in any genre. And so we're really excited to do it because we we live and breathe and sleep all of this. If you ask anyone, we don't have a life. <laughs> and that's, I think, my choice. Uh, and, and we just enjoy doing this. There are so many talented and brilliant folks in Indianapolis and the world over. And it, it really is a privilege to to have that that first crack at what's there and and how to position and how to use it and see what's going to happen with all that so it's like a different form of of crate diving (laughs) yeah interesting yeah we don't know what's what's been submitted and we don't know the angle they're coming from and plus Mm -hmm. you know all these submissions are going to have um came out of a, a bunch of different literary works of Vonnegut so we get to learn a little bit more about Vonnegut in an abstract way which I think is really cool and I think Kurt Vonnegut himself would appreciate that because I think that's how he got a lot of inspiration himself just it's not always on the nose about how someone influences you it's it's a very it, it, it needs all of your senses mm-hmm. um, in the most tactile way to be able to describe something that's so abstract yeah or Vonnegut once described jazz as safe sex of the highest order. Um, so people are wondering, well, why, why is it jazz of all the genres? Why are we p- picking Vonnegut and jazz? That's why. I don't so. know. Vonnegut never got up on the bandstand. I'm saying, I don't know. Sometimes it's not too safe, man. <laughs> no, and, uh, and, and the Vonnegut kids uh, uh, in the documentary, Nanny and Edie, are kind of clowning on the fact that sometimes it was Muzak uh, that, he was, uh, <laughs> that he was listening to. They're very proud of the fact that Vonnegut Museum is trying to uh, make it a really, really forward-thinking uh, organization. Uh, Jaron, you and I have talked about Majiza Holiday's artwork. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just phenomenal. We've got her stuff in the blue room. Uh, just, you know, the, the ability to move the stuff that he found interesting uh, into the future as opposed to looking at the past is very exciting for us, uh, despite talking about Charles Mingus for 25 minutes. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, that's, you know, because he was a badass. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. I love that you gave Charlie Ballantyne a shout out. Uh, I was lucky enough to be invited to be part of the Vonnegut project that he did for the Jazz Fest. Uh, Jared, I love that you pointed out the baritone saxophone because, um, you know, um, Amanda Gardier, who's a phenomenal Indianapolis musician, unbelievable player. Uh, she had to borrow a bass clarinet for that. That was another one of the things I had to learn the hard way that nobody just has a bass clarinet lying around. No, for <laughs> it's, what, it's, man? Like, kind of, so. kind of an expensive thing. You can yeah. listen to an Eric Dolphy. I was going to say, unless we're bringing Eric Dolphy back, and I don't see that happening. So. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, Amanda is Amanda and Charlie are just brilliant musicians in their own right, and you can hear it in their music. Like Charlie's Vonnegut record, it's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just conceptually. It's pretty fascinating, and then the execution of it, it's, it's very thoughtful and poignant. Um, and then Amanda brings that same kind of careful, meticulous approach to it, but they both still put that human condition into it, and that's what makes music music you know and very emotional to the um we we put his record in the jazz exhibit that we just put up last saturday and uh and i never forgot when i listened to that the uh the book breakfast of champions about a guy like a guy named Dwayne hoover who's losing his mind and i swear to god 
Charlie wrote a song called The Mind of Dwayne Hoover that feels exactly like a good independent film as opposed to the really, really bad. <laughs> the yeah. really, really bad independent film. Shout out Bruce Willis. Yeah. <laughs> and Nick Nolte. Yeah. 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 Um, a really, really good independent film was made out of that out of that song. And I was just like, Jesus, Charlie hit a home, a grand slam with that one. Um, but uh, OK, so my next question uh, came down to. Uh, Oh, yeah. Joshua, where did you get the name Sock Joplin, and what does it mean to be a music so sociologist? <laughs> I couldn't even say the word. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's been an evolution of everything. My, when I first returned to, to public performance as a, a professional classical pianist, originally for me, the dream was to be a orchestral trumpet player. Um, and I still play. Uh, and that, that was the goal. That was the dream. And then, you know, life happens and you kind of have to pivot and, and just kind of realize like, well, if not A, then perhaps B. And if not B, then C. And so, so here we are uh, back with piano. I never play with my, with my shoes on. I always practice uh, in socks. And so I just got really comfortable with that. So you're a hippie. Always. <laughs> always, man, yeah. And so, you know, you always say you're supposed to take the test the way that you study. And so performance for me is very much taking the test. And, and I'd like to do that in the same way that I practice. So I always have like these fun, interesting, like obnoxious socks. So my nickname used to be the Barefoot Beethoven. And then <laughs> I like that. That's good. There was yeah. a good friend of mine that we grew up with. And she would say, no, nah, I'm start calling you Sock Joplin off of, of Scott Joplin. I was like, Natalie, I think we got it. And so ever since then, <laughs> that's what it is. And so it's kind of a, a cool tradition I have, like at most of my shows and lectures, in lieu of flowers, people bring socks. And uh, I haven't bought my own pair of socks, I think, in about five years. Oh, now I'm really mad. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. It's cool. Jesus. Uh, and so if you ever want to get in my good graces, uh, run me some socks. <laughs> but uh, I found a way to kind of incorporate all that. I actually don't have a music degree. I went to DePaul University originally as a trumpet performance in English Lit double major. And like every, wah, wah. I know, right? <laughs> and like every kind of like hippie 18 to 22 year old who has no idea what they're going to do, I left both of those and, and got a degree in sociology. And it wasn't until much later that I really kind of figured out, hey, and found where the intersections between the sociological discipline and how that can be applied to music history, specific to classical music and just in general. So hence, it's a blending of my passions and and. and professions and, and degrees, which is music sociology, an interesting way to make kind of academia and history and the implications within all of it very translatable, and it's a performing art in and of itself, and so I have a lot of fun doing that. Yeah, if, if we had known that you collected socks, people would give you socks, we yes. would have brought some socks for you. I guess I can take the socks off my feet. You, you can have those. Okay. Like, run me the new ones, and I'll give you my mailing address before we get out of here, so right. feel free to just, like, you know. Yeah. This is like a Craigslist setup. <laughs> yeah. I'll make sure the socks I send you were clean. Appreciate that. And not worn. I, yeah. I really do appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, but you guys were talking about Charlie Ballantyne and his Vonnegut-inspired record. Actually, just coincidentally read an article online. I didn't even search for it. It just kind of came up. It's like, oh, songs inspired by Kurt Vonnegut. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, Blue Monday by uh, New Order was inspired by Vonnegut, which I had no idea about. Um, it wasn't on the list, but I'm pretty sure Noble Soldier by the Murlocs okay. is inspired by Vonnegut. Uh, all that said, with your guys' work, do you guys have any kind of Vonnegut-inspired things? Or if not, do you anticipate doing that in the future? You know, I think there's always the possibility for that to happen. Um, you know, I think, well, I was at least introduced to Vonnegut in very much the uh, same way that many people were through Slaughterhouse-Five, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. Um, but I also <clears throat> used to be the daytime manager at a Kurt Vonnegut-themed restaurant. Oh, nice. Here yeah. in Indianapolis, awesome. Bluebeard. Yeah, oh, okay. we, I was going to say, we could yeah. say Bluebeard yeah. on the microphone. Okay, yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, I worked, there for, yeah. I worked there for eight years, was manager cool. there for six. Mm -hmm. And after eight years, I'm like, man, this book is here all the time. I should probably <laughs> read it at some point, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, and so I, I think in, in that manner, it, it's a very loose association that I have with Vonnegut, mm -hmm. but knowing exactly where he was coming from, the things that he tries to portray. I, I will say that I, I am influenced by writers for sure. Um, I've written uh, one of my favorite compositions that I've written is for uh, the late poet Etheridge Knight that while he mm -hmm. wasn't born here in Indianapolis, he spent most of it, a, a lot of his life here in Indianapolis. And um, his sister was really good friends with our grandmother. So we grew oh, up cool. with her, yeah. you know. So yes, the, the possibility for um, authors to influence musicians is always there. With 
Vonnegut, though, it's a very nuanced. It would have to be a very nuanced kind of thing, mm. you know. Yeah. Um, so who knows? I mean, that that probably will be a project of mine. But I know Charlie like Charlie hit a grand slam with it, so I'm yeah. gonna let that <laughs> sit for a minute. You yeah, know? <laughs> I, I was gonna say you've mentioned James Baldwin before. I mean, is he's a he, big is he a character that you would probably for sure. I'd say Etheridge Knight, James Baldwin, uh, Nikki Giovanni are probably my three most uh, notable influences from the literary world. They just, and it's a very identifiable existence for Mm -hmm. us. uh, With Nikki Giovanni spent a lot of time here in Indianapolis. Um, Our our relatives, our um, grandparents, great-grandparents lived here in Indianapolis. And at that point of time, there was one section of Indianapolis that they were allowed to live in, not far from Indiana Avenue in the, in the library. So where IUPUI is now used to be Lockfield Gardens. That's where black people had to live. Mm-hmm. So our father grew up in Lockfield Gardens. So it's not so far removed from where we are today. But those elements um, permeate generations um, and not always in a pleasant way it's not it's also not always in a very unpleasant way but it's it's a a knowledge and recognition of that that you use and you start reading literature that identifies things that way that may not be exactly how you grew up or your relatives grew up it's definitely identifiable um and so those things definitely permeate into our existence the way we view the world the way the world views us you know and you just kind of spin that and and put your own flavor on it and put that product out I was going to say, does the depth of the Indianapolis musical heritage, and again, I'm going to lean towards jazz here, mostly because, like, Wes Montgomery, not exactly an unfamous name (laughs) in the world of guitar. And, like, you know, he was a golden god of jazz, and he died at 45 from a heart attack while still... I think he was either still employed mm-hmm. as a, at a day job in Indianapolis yep. or only a few years removed from that. I think it was a few years removed, but it wasn't long. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he would do these you know gigs that lasted till 3 a.m. and then have to get up and work a factory job the next day. That boggles my mind, and I probably used to do that once upon a Well, and, and then some other variation we used to do it, too. I mean, we would be out partying until 4 in the morning. I'm like, ah, the alarm goes off. You have to be at your day job at 8.30, <laughs> and, and you, you grunt it out, right? So that's yeah. not too, too unfamiliar. Yeah. No, it's not. But I just I I, I thought that that in depth history. Uh, Alita Hodge, yeah, did uh, did an artwork piece for uh, for Christmas Addicts graduates, uh, and J J Johnson, the yeah. trombonist who is from Indianapolis. You know, he did some phenomenal stuff in his life, and I didn't realize not only did he never really, you know, make much of a like a, a super impressive living from what he did. And then he took his own life in 2001 because I think he was dealing with major health problems and what have you. Like, I mean, there's it, it's an insane history of like the insane amount of genius that we've had come out of this city. <laughs> it's I think it's also kind of a call to and, and kind of back to Vonnegut as well. He, he's always so very um, future oriented. He just had a knack for mm-hmm. almost seeing the future. I, the last book that I read. Uh, was actually Vonnegut's first, which is Player Piano. Oh, yeah. Right? And so I love that is, one. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great. Yeah, and fantastic. there's so much unheard of foreshadowing between, you know, man and machine, and right? And we yeah. have those conversations today. This city has a, a huge history of creating amazing uh, artists. We also have a, a huge history of not acknowledging and recognizing the value of that genius and that creativity while it's here. It's almost a, you'll miss us when we're gone. And unfortunately that still continues to play out anywhere from how we promote and truly value and celebrate the gifts that we have here, but then also what we do retrospectively, right? It's like, once you leave, then it becomes, Mm -hmm. and sometimes that's the name of the game. These are folks who, you know, we can't help but create. We're gonna do this anyway. We don't know what else to do. and, and think about how many other artists in all mediums and all genres, you know, don't get there just doing, you know, until it's like posthumously. So, you know, but we do have an opportunity maybe to, to turn that around and to, and the only way we do that is by drawing these connections between the literature, the music, the people, the neighborhoods, the history that's in there and doing it unapologetically so. Um, sometimes we hit the mark or get close to it, 
we have a long way to go, but that is job security for <laughs> folks like me and Jared and nice. for you all. But I think that's just the, the push and pull and that tension that Indianapolis has always had. But that's what makes Indianapolis Indianapolis sometimes, right? Yeah. Everything doesn't have to be this perfectly curated and packaged thing. And, and sometimes there is advantage in beauty and examining the imperfection. Well, especially artists having no choice in the matter, like it's indie, it's got to come out type of mentality. Um, you mentioned James Baldwin talking about people who have to confront reality because if they do so, they know they'll have to confront pain. Mm -hmm. I think Vonnegut was a type A classic example of that, especially in like the 80s and 90s and especially in the 2000s, he would occasionally make these remarks about how it's like, oh, I'm burned out, I've got nothing to say, and then all of a sudden there's another book coming out. <laughs> and it's like, you could tell it was kind of a labor of love, but also an extreme labor of pain. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think anyone who's ever tried to make something out of nothing can relate to that. That on some level you're kind of like, is this smart? Is this going to be approved of by others? Am I wasting my time? There's a real intimidation factor there. Mm -hmm. Like it's there, There's such a big difference between thinking about doing something and doing something. Getting started is so difficult. <laughs> the blank you page know? is just yeah. like sticking its tongue out. It's so it. intimidating. I mean, I'll I'll look at my horn. I'm like, all right, I'm going to practice this, and I need to practice this, and my horn's still in the case. You know, it's just yeah. like, is my head not in the right spot? Am I am I just being lazy? Am I? You know, it's getting started is is very difficult. But once you hit that stride, whether it's sugar or the other word. <laughs> <laughs> You know, well, it's it's still purging. Speaking of know? sugar, though, I I, I I felt that I was um, um, David Andercheck at the Chatterbox had a, had an anniversary has a, has a yearly anniversary party where it gives away free Basbo's pizza, which unfortunately often has vegetables on it. And, um, <laughs> yeah, that's too bad. I I, ret bad. I, I returned the pizza. I returned the pizza. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was seeing Jared's band Premium Blend, and the Tucker Brothers were there, and uh, Charlie and Amanda finished up with a killer version of Temptation by. Um, by Tom Waits, but I just remember your band playing Cherokee by Clifford Brown, I think. Um, am I right about that? I, I... Pro I mean, it's one of the, wasn't written by him, but that's He's one of the most known. iconic records for study. It's on that Study in Brown album, which is killing. A anyway, I've seen your band a thousand times, and I, I was just, there was one moment there where you just blew the roof off the place, and I was like, huh, I wonder if Jared wishes he could bottle that sax solo. Mm. Um, because <laughs> I, I was just like, wow, I've seen very few people play a solo like that um it was pretty memorable and i and i, and I think that's one thing with artists that sometimes when you have to let go of something or finish something that's also really really challenging to it, say this is done and whatever i've left behind is what i've left behind. it's out in the ether i kind of have this I, I try to be mindful of it and try to remind myself of it if i'm getting you know in my feelings about something I, I, I only have so much control of my art once I share it. At that point, it's not mine anymore mm -hmm. because I did it so other people could witness it, not to celebrate it or not to like slam it, you know what I mean? But an artist, once they, they purge a work, it belongs to the people and, and that's it. You know, and so... And what do we always say? There's a... Uh, it's only... a way to keep our, our feelings in check. And Jared's like, you're in your bag, Joshua. He's like, always remember, people are going to have... One of three reactions. One of three reactions. They're either going to love it, they're going to hate it, or they're not going to care. And so if you <laughs> yeah. can deal with fair. Yeah. either of that, then you'll be fine. Yeah. There's right? only three X factors mm -hmm. that you that yeah. your ego has to wrestle with. Yeah. And if you have those three factors, uh, if you've uh, reconciled those three factors, you know, to a point where you can continue to move on... Yeah, I got a problem with it. I'm sure Vonnegut had so many reviews of his books that were good, bad, ugly, and somewhere in between. Did he care? I mean, I'm sure on some level maybe he did, but on another level, it was probably fodder to write another book to throw a middle finger out to critics that <laughs> yeah. didn't like it. Well, you know? yeah, especially his books in the 70s, right, Chris? He, I mean, they were panned critically pretty wide. But... His his relationship with that will always fascinate me and blow my mind. I, I, I Because he was trying something so postmodern, uh, because by the time he came to Slapstick, he was writing about loneliness from the perspective of deranged twins who have a semi-incestuous relationship with one another. Yeah. Like, the, you know, the New York Times called Vonnegut fans the semi-literate young. And when I found that book, I was like, this is the most heartfelt book about how life can be really hard sometimes. And he was trying to say something really difficult with yeah. that. And I think he succeeded. 
I I was just like, man, yeah, those criticisms must have really, really, really stung. Yeah. Um, which is funny because I think the book is going through a bit of a, a rebirth right now. I'll let you ask the next question. <laughs> Thank you. It, it suddenly dawns on me. <laughs> yeah. It's a really music-focused podcast. Yeah. Hey, that's a-okay. Um, well, obviously, we talked about you guys being Vonnegut direct, or music directors in residence. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, what projects are you guys working on that you're both psyched about? Quite a few. It's We always have to be Renaissance people because uh, outside of having to get other nine-to-fives, like there's no one job that gets it done, whether it be performance or anything else. Uh, I'm super excited, just wrapped up uh, season four of a podcast that I ho- uh, co-host with the internationally renowned operatic soprano, who is also an Indianapolis native, Angela Brown. Uh, people will remember her. She made her Metropolitan debut, Metropolitan Opera debut in 2004 as Aida. Uh, and so she and I work together on this podcast called Melanated Moments in Classical Music. And so what we do is we highlight uh, classical composers and musicians from the African diaspora who are often left out of the canon uh, in classical music. We won the best uh, music podcast in 2020 from the Black Podcasting Awards. And we've just had so much fun doing that. The weather's getting nice. and. Yeah. Knock on wood, I really don't want to jinx it, but the pandemic seems to have, we have controlled some of it or ignored it completely, <laughs> but we're going to do what we want to do. And so tours are coming back. Yeah. Um, and I'm also the uh, creative partner in residence with the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra. So through 2024, getting to work with them on uh, helping them pick their season, what gets played, what goes with education and community engagement activities and all that. And so it's always fun. Uh, there's applied practice and performance. There's the nerdy, researchy stuff that I love to do. And then my big purpose that I really feel committed to is, for me, it's not just enough to perform. It's to transform uh, an industry that I grew up in that um, I didn't see myself in and sometimes felt like it didn't want me in it. And so it's really important for me to make sure that when I'm doing lectures here or across the country and performances that the goal is to change how classical music makes itself accessible through the music and the performance itself, who they actually hire, how the audition process works, what their board members look like, and explaining to folks of any color and creed, if you want to do it, you can do it. You still have to work hard, but Mm -hmm. you shouldn't have to work harder because we are completely inundated and dominated by this false notion of like European superiority. So... uh, in a nutshell, that's what I got going on. Awesome, yeah. <laughs> Jared, same question for you. What are you working on at your Man, I'm trying to make it sound as... You ain't got to do that. I know, I won't. <laughs> and I won't, so... Um, <laughs> uh, a lot. You know, the premium blend is we are currently uh, working out another record. We've This will be number five um, since 2017. Um, so... The tunes are written, we're, we're shedding them now, and it's, it's a beautiful experience. I've got two steady weekly gigs, uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays, and they're paid practices, and it's so much fun. So we get to figure out what direction we want the tunes to, to go in, and so by mid-July, we'll be doing um, our fifth record, um, so I'm really excited about that. Have um, you named it yet? I, I should know, but I'm you don't even tell me Playing around stuff. with stuff, we'll, we'll see. There was um, two records back, um, I titled it Vices. Mm-hmm. This one, um, I kind of wanted to play off of that. We may call it Virtue. Oh, so nice. it's yeah. this whole mm-hmm. duality of, you know, that there's tunes on it like Fortuna. And it's, it's taking this kind of Machiavellian concept, you know, nice. and, and applying that. So again, I'm reading and applying <laughs> <laughs> to my music. Um, doing that, I've been doing um, in somewhat of a limited capacity that's growing. been a content comp- contributor for um, our local CBS affiliate, and that's been a lot of fun. Um, we are, I can't announce it yet, but we're, we're booking for another major uh, venue up in Carmel. Um, so we'll be doing that next year. Joshua and I in the fall are going to be um, going to be performing for Opera in the Park. So that's going to be nice. I get to get out of my genre a little bit and oh, very cool. follow Joshua's lead. I have tried lead. to drag this little boy into classical music <laughs> since we started. And he's trying to drag me into jazz, too. So it's always this kind of fun push and pull. As long as we do it, what, like once every two decades? Then, then it works. Then we enjoy it. And yeah. we're like, okay, yeah. that's fun. Let's, let's, we'll see you know, we sometimes get we, get, we get into it creatively. 
sometimes personally, but I was going to say about about calling out ignorance within uh, the classical music world. Sure. What role does improvisation play in classical music? Oh, huge! I mean, it's always been there. You know, that's that's what made Mozart Mozart. He was making that stuff up, you know, on the fly. Bach, with a lot of his, you know, that's kind of the groundwork for literally laying out the structural language and vocabulary. They call it ornamentation. Yes, right. <laughs> okay, so, so people, so people who think classical music is stuffy and 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 pretty are full of <laughs> to a certain degree. You know, I don't think so. I think classical music does not do itself any favors by really being so restrictive and limiting to telling people what it is and what it isn't. Um. I just find it interesting, like between jazz and pop and punk and grunge and even just linguistic and languages, society and people have no problems with letting them evolve and change and everything else. Yet classical music seems to be this one holdout where it's like, nope, everything is absolute. And if it's not this, then it can't be called. And that's, that's bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, and so, again, in order to have that evolve, it needs permission to. It has the right to. And, and, and I think some people are a little bit intimidated and afraid to do so because they don't, they can't chart the course of where it's going. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the whole point. Artists have always been fortune tellers and the future seers. And then it's always within 50 to 100 years later that we all look back as a society retrospectively and then we quantify what happened, right? And so I don't understand why we don't do that or we don't do more of that within that genre and give it the freedom it needs to. Because you actually, you, you endear more people to it. Um, that's that's why Vonnegut said we needed a secretary of the future. Mm -hmm. I agree, and he's kind of it, <laughs> right? Or he was. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. Well, I think this segues perfectly into one of our favorite segments. My mom said it was her favorite segment, so be sure to buckle in because it's about to be great. <laughs> oh man! Oh man! I have a feeling this is going to be like a rapid fire or something. Yeah, it is. Now, yeah. now, we, now we all have to say our moms are awesome. Like. Yeah. Well, that, well, you're exactly right. We call it the speed round, oh, and I say in a fun voice. So uh, this will consist of 10 rapid-fire questions. Uh, we will uh, have a mix of Vonnegut and just general questions. We'll say the first thing that comes into your head. Uh, I don't know how you guys want to do this since you guys have two. Joshua, you answer first, and Jared second, or let's something that. like that. Re reverse okay. alphabetical order. Okay, yeah, we'll yeah do let's that. do that. Well, we'll birth order. That's yes. how we'll do it. So. <laughs> That'll work. Yeah, oh, yeah, they're twins, by the way, and Sam and I are wearing the same shirt. <laughs> yeah, not on purpose because we're talking to twins today. But All right, let's get started with the speed round. Here we go. All right, the jazz musician you try to emulate most? Sarah Vaughn. Dexter Gordon. Slaughterhouse-Five or Cat's Cradle? Cat's Cradle. Cat's Cradle. Cat's Cradle. The deceased historical figure you would most like to grab lunch with? William Grant Still. Uh, God, that was uh, quick. God, that was quick. <laughs> that was impressive. <laughs> Man, this is heavy. Uh, <laughs> it is the speed round. And you're not being very speedy. I'm oh, not. Oh, man. Uh, for his day, let's say Mingus. Charles oh, Mingus. yeah, yeah. Jesus. Why that was, yeah, well. that yeah. should have come to all of us. Who do you guys want the Indiana Pacers to draft? Anyone who can actually hit a basket. Draft a different GM. <laughs> Boom, baby. Yeah, who's, who's that guy? Kevin Pritchard. I actually yeah. like Kevin Pritchard, but that's yeah, that's beside the point. Show your work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, if Kurt Vonnegut was here in the room with us, what would you tell him? Want to grab a beer? Your city needs help. They didn't listen to you. Most misunderstood thing about jazz? That it's just all made up. Yeah, that it's just loosey-goosey and there's no structure to it. Favorite non-Vonnegut author? James Baldwin. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree. James Baldwin. Or, yeah, James Baldwin. The person who has had the most positive impact on your careers. We it's, have to just pick one. Yeah. Like, there's a whole tribe. Yeah. Of yeah. yeah. Honestly, really hey, hold on, hold to. on. Considering the amount of Indianapolis legends, let's just, just start unloading. Mom and Dad, uh, Rob Dixon, Stephen Jones, Ryan Taylor, Brandon Meeks, um, Clifford Ratliff, uh, Steve Ali. Um, Dr. Ching Chu Hu, Pete Mills, this can go on for a very long <laughs> so time. So I'll pick up again, mom and dad, honestly, Jared, you, uh, Jenny Birch of Classical Music Indie, uh, executive director, Eric Salazar, who's their community engagement, Angela Brown, Dr. William C. Banfield, Anthony Davis, and on and on. Mrs. Click, our first music Joyce teacher, Click. Joyce Click, uh, she's retiring after 44 years at Washington Township. Marjorie Schreer. She was our piano not. teacher for 13 years. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like she's the reason why we are doing this. I could not teach in a school for 44 years. Jesus. (laughs) Oh my God. And the list goes on. There's so many. Yeah. So very last one of the speed round. Sorry, Chris. Very last one of the speed round. Uh, if you had to sum up what you hope to mostly achieve out of being musical directors and residents with the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, what do you hope to achieve? Sustainability. Sustainability and a tangible destination to bring all kinds of people back to the avenue, bringing the Indiana Avenue back. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of double up. Like, this is a really neat point when you ask about influences and people that were there for your career because, you know, having been a musician myself at an earlier life, man, do you ever need a village to do anything at all? Nobody gets here by on their by own. And those who yeah. think that Not they even are, close. Full of <laughs> yeah, it's it's the level to which you need that. Like, I, 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 I'm routinely made fun of for being a Muncie fanatic. Like, on that, remember when Rob Dixon put together that uh, Naptown sound thing at the yes. Jazz Yeah, and that was just before yes. everything, about a Went month to and a half before everything shut yeah. down. You're, you, you guys were playing Pursuit of Happiness, yep. a killer version, and they I, I yelled Muncie at the top of my lungs because someone from Muncie was sitting in or something along those lines and uh, and I it didn't make the recording uh, I think I think they must have intentionally blurted it out but long story short like the reason I do that is because in order to go see live music seven nights a week in a town like Muncie required so many music fanatics and musicians mm-hmm. who couldn't do anything else mm-hmm. to live in one spot and live in a walkable sustainable spot like you just really 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 need that in order to make any kind of arts and humanities project work is you need a whole hell of a lot of people involved yeah absolutely all right so final question and then we'll get you guys out of here on uh-huh. this um, you know we don't have anything else to do today right <laughs> we can totally kick it for yeah. like i'm fine we we can we yeah, can talk uh, how do you guys feel about how do you guys feel about charles mingus <laughs> we can make this a six-hour episode if we want yeah <laughs> Uh, Vonnegut gave a ton of college commencement speeches and he taught uh, whenever and wherever he could. Uh, As we wrap up this uh, episode of the Vonnegut what is your guys' advice for the young? Uh, It's to stay focused and focus on your focus and to be receptive to things that change. Um, And the biggest piece of advice I think would be to know the difference between constructive criticism and just shade, but also being able to accept it without taking it personally. Because it's going to happen anyway, and you'll be able to sift through what's important and what's not. Um, And this doesn't happen overnight. We're in an age of TikTok and, and Snapchat, and I don't know what else you know it's not helping our mental health at all and it's just i think everyone sees just instant gratification to equate instant success it does not work work like that and if it does work like that it's not valuable and it's not worth it it is there's no fulfillment in that this is a Mm -hmm. lifelong thing no one gets out of this alive right Mm -hmm. um and so it's just about accepting criticism and using it to your advantage and to just be in it for the right reason. If you're in something just to be famous, you're doing it wrong. That's it. I would say, uh, you know, everyone's like, oh, find your passion. And so by all means, yes, just understanding that's okay. Like passion is irrational and and hard to find. Right. Yeah. And so when you do find it, that's not you being weird or crazy. That's how passion works. It makes perfect sense. It just feels like it doesn't because everyone around you doesn't live in a world like that. And if you have to make pivots and turns in your in your career, like it all fits together for a reason. And just be patient with yourself and with your own life to realize that a no doesn't mean no, not ever. It can mean no, not right now. And there are many different ways in which to create a living and a life within and outside of the arts. And so explore that and be okay with that because there will come a day you'll be like, oh, so that's why I did this or didn't do that. And this is how it all led to it. Um, And lean into the irrationality of what gets you up every single day when someone's telling you, but this isn't how you make a living or this doesn't make sense. Another thing that our, our father told us this you know, when we were really, really young and it didn't make sense then, but now I'm just like, oh my gosh, this man is so smart. (laughs) Uh, He would always tell me and my brother and my sister, he'd say, you're always going to have to do something that you don't want to do, but you'll know when you don't have to do it anymore. And it gets you closer to identifying exactly what it is you do want to do. 
smartest man on the planet. He really he? is. <laughs> so yeah. And here's the other part too. And take what we say with a huge grain of salt because we're still trying to figure it out too. Like we are the authorities <laughs> on nothing, including our own life and experience, right? <laughs> you gotta have you gotta have that humble awareness any anywhere you go. I've been with the the curator of the museum since uh, 2011, and somebody asked me about it the other day, and I was like, I still have to pinch myself. Yeah, it's it's really awkward to get up in the day and be like, I'm gonna go do something I feel find really enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And because I've worked, I've worked like you know, ironically, working at a gas station was pretty fun too, mm. uh, because everybody paid with credit cards. But <laughs> they, um, you know, I've had other jobs where it's just like this is what hell is like, you right. know, and 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 that sticks in your mind. I I'm gonna make both my kids wait tables at some point. Please or another. do. It is essential. Yeah, because Absolutely if you suck at it, you will never forget that yeah. as long as you live. It is the <laughs> most accurate, depending on where which restaurant it is, it's the most accurate 30 to 2 hour slice of humanity that you're ever <laughs> going to get. And on the bad ones, you're just like, you know what? In 45 minutes, I never have to see this D-bag ever again, right? But if it's also a great experience, it it's Restores like, okay, humanity. yeah, like there's Restores still humanity. hope for humanity. So sure. it is, is the most the most accurate slice of of how people are that you're ever going to find yeah yeah to see and hear more from the thompson brothers head over to premiumblendindie.org and classicalmusicindie.org thanks again for joining us i uh, it says in parentheses here let them say something yeah this is <laughs> <laughs> thank you for <laughs> I, we're coming back this is fun I this love is a this. lot of fun uh <laughs> yeah we're, we're definitely getting charlie and amanda on here later on absolutely yeah. yeah absolutely we'll have to put six people in here oreo's gonna love that <laughs> this is this is just such a cool thing to do and uh it's exciting to be able to have you know a little window in which to kind of explain the the madness behind our method and um yeah and so more of this right more yeah. of this for for the city of Indianapolis and, and the world over. Uh, the world is in desperate supply or desperate need of this. Um, yeah. And so the more of it that we can just throw out there, the better off we are going to be. So yeah, this is this has been fun. Well, thanks very much, guys. Until next time, Vonnegutians, stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials for more exciting episodes coming soon. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Vonicast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Joshua and Jared Thompson. For more on the Thompson brothers, check out their websites. And stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials at Vonnegut Library for all our events and programs, including new episodes of the Vonicast coming soon. The Vonicast is a co-production by the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library in WQRT, Indianapolis. Special thanks to our guests, Joshua and Jared Thompson. The Vonicast is produced by Fiona Duffy and Drew DeSimone. Audio mix and editing by Nick Corey. Cover art by Arusiak P. Vaitsian. Vonicast episodes and all other KVML programming can be found on kvml.org and on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Vonnegut Library.